happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for April 12th, 2017. This is Wes Fryer coming from Oklahoma City, and I am still the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School, and I am wearing my, I'm blogging this shirt today. I really felt like I needed an EFF or some kind of total privacy, you know, advocacy shirt, but this was the best that I could get. Um, so I want to pass it all the way up to the Northeast, and I'm so excited for Beth Holland to, to join us. Introduce yourself to everyone, Beth. Great, thanks. Uh, Wes, thanks so much for having me, and, and Jason, it's nice to meet you. Uh, my name is Beth Holland. I'm coming to you from Newport, Rhode Island, uh, where I'm a doctoral student right now. I'm in my second year working at um, Johns Hopkins in the Entrepreneurial Leadership and Education Program, uh, but I also write in a bunch of places like Edutopia and um, EdTech Researcher at Education Week, and still doing some professional development work with the great folks over at EdTech Teacher. So I'm all over the place these days, but I happen to be in Rhode Island right now, although it was sort of near you last week at the Iowa one-to-one -one conference. So Iowa is slightly closer to Oklahoma than you were. And that's, a, Rhode Island. And that's a great conference. It was so. a great conference. So. Very good. All right. And joining yeah. us as almost always, he spent a month touring around the country, sharing his ed tech wisdom, mainly in the Northwest. But welcome, Jason. Thank you. Um, good evening. Um, my name is Jason Neifer. I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in the University of Montana. I am also a doctoral candidate in educational technology at the University of Montana. And I am the uh, Northwest Council for Computer Education Tech Savvy Administrator in residence, which means that I do offer professional development both part of the conference and for hire, www.iper.com. And um, I like to talk tech, which is why I enjoy jumping in the chat every week with Wes. So lots of interesting things going on right now. Um, it, there, in fact, I've been looking at our list tonight. It appears that uh, there's no way we'll get through even a third of this because of the depth of these topics, but it's great to connect every week with folks to talk a little bit about this. And by the way, for those of you interested, you can always check out the links we're talking about every week, and there's always at least a, a half dozen or more bonus links that we couldn't get to. If you go to our website, edtechsr.com, you can see a link to our Google Doc where you can see everything we're thinking about and things we get to and things we don't quite get to during the show each week. Awesome. And we will, as we always do, have a 32 kilobit audio version as well as a downloadable video version, or you can subscribe on YouTube. So let is, let's just jump right in. And Beth, as our guest, we'll, we'll pass it to you. What article would you like to share a little bit about and have us, uh, have us feed on intellectually tonight? Well, so I'm going to jump right down because I'll be perfectly honest. I don't know that much about the first few topics that you put in. Um, so I'm going to skip those. That it's is like fine. My, <laughs> we, we don't have to go in order. We can just. Oh, good. Good. So, you know, I think it's a, a combination of the topics that you put in. I think it fit really well. Whereas there's the recent work coming out of the World Economic Forum that's been talking about like the advent, not just of artificial intelligence, but now emotional intelligence. And what does it really mean, you know, with all of this technology coming into society? And so I'm going to I'm in synthesis mode right now, working on my dissertation, so I'm going to jump right in there of, of looking at both that work as well as I had thrown the link to you guys with the Anderson Cooper interview from um, 60 Minutes on Sunday, and then it appeared again on CBS Monday morning about this idea of brain hacking and how were technology companies potentially manipulating our devices in order to essentially create addiction-like behaviors to make us constantly wanting to be on our devices. And so on the one hand, we're developing technology to act more human. And on the other hand, potentially people are looking at, well, how do we keep you glued to a device? And so I will, I'm not sure how you want to go from there, but I, that's definitely been in the back of my mind all week. Sure. Well, Jason, I'll let you take first steps. I think in back in June, uh, you had put in one of, uh, one of the articles about the, you know, former Google designer says that, um, you know, social media is like slot machines. So this is something we've, we've touched on a little bit. So I, I did watch the Anderson Cooper, um, video from 60 Minutes and then also some of the, some of the backstory. So what, what are your thoughts at this point? And have, have any of those changed, I guess, Jason, since we kind of took this up in June? Well, I think that, and I, I also do a, a presentation on this um, that I've, I've done with teacher groups and at conferences. And, and part of the problem, I think, with this topic is that 
since the adults are as or more addicted to their phones than kids are, I, I think there's a weird power dynamic in classrooms. You know, 10 years ago, the question was, you know, uh, do we allow cell phones in the classroom or not? And that's still a discussion that's going on in classrooms across the United States. Um, I think that the problem with that is that framing that as a yes or no question diminishes uh, an incredible opportunity to talk about the use of cell phones inside of a classroom and why or why, why or why not they are useful devices. And what struck a chord with me with the article related, now I've, I've just queued up that, the Anderson Cooper story because I, I want to see uh, how that's framed. Um, what what uh, the article we, we referred to last summer said was that, you know, that there are, there are ethical problems in the way people are designing um, some of these uh, uh, online devices because it's ultimately creating a, a, a addiction where it's not intended. It's it, or I'm sorry, it's intended to draw you in and keep you kind of sucked into that. And, and I've always personally questioned. I don't get the folks that you know play uh, uh, gambling uh, apps. Uh, you know to uh, an extensive end with zero amounts of of money at stake. Right, like that to me doesn't mean a calculus. But if you think about it. You know that that part of what gambling addiction would be is that you divorced yourself from the economic calculus of gambling, and you are are much more into a, a temporary or a fleeting feeling of, of of winning or losing. And I think that the fact that the designers are apparently using this to help design um, apps on your phone and computer experiences is you know potentially a very powerful thing we could tap into in education. But it comes at an enormous risk that we need to be very careful about um, as educational technology leaders. And so, you know, I, I think this discussion is way too often framed as yes or no, when I think there's a much more nuanced discussion that we could be having um, about uh, technology in the classroom. Um, I hit on this on a couple of presentations I did at NCC a couple of weeks ago, uh, which is the uh, 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 ISTE affiliate in the Pacific Northwest and, and their conference. And, you know, I everyone nods and everyone kind of gets this, but we're just not having these discussions in the classroom yet. Right. Well, uh, before I respond, I want to give shout outs to three live viewers. Uh, we got Peggy George coming to us from from Phoenix, Arizona and Jamie Camp down in Texas. And welcome Stephen Hurley. And he's up in Canada. I'm not sure if he's in Toronto tonight, but actually Stephen has been resyndicating the EdTech SR um, on his uh, voice of uh, educational voice of Canada channel. So awesome to, to have you live. You know, most of my thoughts about this, well, I have the parent hat, right, with, with our 7th grade daughter and 11th grade daughter at home. Um, and then at school, we're really focusing on digital citizenship, talking about that. I I put a link from 1997, so this may be the oldest link we've ever shared at EdTechSR, but it's uh, called The Attention Economy and the Net by Michael Goldhaber. And this is one of those articles that's really shaped my thinking for a long time. What Goldhaber says is that economies are defined by scarcity, not plenty. And so we do not have an information economy. We have an attention economy. And attention is really what, you know, we need to focus in on and and. In the context of digital citizenship, we've been uh, working on a five-year strategic plan for digital citizenship at our school and have just revised that and shared that with uh, with our head of school and are in the process of uh, determining you know, what kinds of things we'll be doing for kids, parents, uh, teachers, everybody on the topic of digital citizenship. And I think one of the most important pieces is just the intentionality and the you know, the awareness and then the decision making, you know, what am I going to start my day with? Uh, how am I going to live my life? And, you know, I, I think a lot of times adults are tending to, as we've seen with the digital native phenomena and, and just technology in general, really look down their noses at young people and say, this terrible, oh, this terrible generation, you know, from Elvis, you know, even before Elvis, I'm sure people were saying this, um, but I, I definitely think we see it uh, as much with adults as we do with kids. And so the the mindfulness sides of this and the, um, the ways in which we just need to be um, recognizing that it's not healthy to be plugged in 24-7, 
And maybe we are going to become transhuman. You know, the new National Geographic uh, for April 2017 is about beyond human, and it's talking about implants and prosthetics and all kinds of things. And and maybe we are going to become, you know, these different human beings that our brains are capable of, of being on 24-7. But uh, I'm, I'm really interested, Beth. You, it seemed like last summer you got some some very good information about the biology and the and the physiology of this. Does that put a different slant on all this for you? Yeah. So I'm I'm sure I'm kind of I'm wrapping my head around this right now. So I'll work backwards. So one was um, I took a class in neuroscience last year, and then the comment about the apps were like slot machines. That was the same person who's in the Anderson Cooper video. I did read both of those, so it's the same guy um, from. No, I'm not a neuroscientist and I did not do well in that one test. So just here's my disclaimer. And I'm looking at my notes right now as a total cheat sheet because this Look at is that. Like, notes from you know, class. Do you want to see my a notes? True, a true scholar. She is a scholar, ladies and gentlemen. I, I can I can share my screen. You can I got pretty colors on the brain and everything. Um but what so what I did learn and, and one of the things is when they talk about the chemical hormones that are produced by different responses within your brain and it was mentioned in the video so there's two different things that can happen there's um dopamine which gets produced as a stimulus and dopamine is the thing that lets you go woohoo i won so that idea of the slot like i pulled the handle i won that's a dopamine release and so you know the the video in the articles we're talking about you know your status message you get a ping hey i won that's a quick dopamine release or I get a text message, someone's thinking about me, that's a dopamine release. And so when they started talking about the neuroscience of addiction, they were tying it to that idea of every time there's an alert or something happens, there's a potential dopamine release. And you get those same releases from, you know, you can get it from drugs, you can get it from gambling, you can get it from sex, you can get it from exercise. Like there's all these other ways that you can get that release. And so recognizing that there's that chemical component on the flip side, they also talk about the release of cortisol. And when cortisol is released, that becomes a stressor. And I know that in another classes I was taking sort of simultaneously, we were actually looking at the idea of toxic stress, where particularly when you're in settings where you might have students who are in, whether it's high poverty or high crime or some type of an environment that might be constant stress, their brain is producing so much cortisol in response to that stress that it actually inhibits learning. And so the reaction they were saying is people who might be so used to that dopamine release based on the alerts from their mobile devices, when they're not getting that, it starts to create a release of cortisol, which is induced by stress. So then it becomes this like, wait, why doesn't anyone like me? Why isn't anyone looking at my Instagram? Why don't I have emails? Like, and as that cortisol comes in, it's starting to block and become an inhibitor for anything else that might be going on. I mean, so from a pure biology standpoint, I mean, that was what they were relating it to. Um, we used a text or not a textbook, but a book book. Uh, oh, and I should have put it actually on the document. I'll add it when I'm not going to crash something. Uh, but it was Dr. Marielle Hardiman, who's at Johns Hopkins. And she wrote a book about the brain targeted teaching technique, which if you're looking for a great brain book, and I was admittedly not as excited about this class as I probably should have been, but it did convince me otherwise. She talks about understanding how the brain works so that when you're designing learning environments, you can take advantage of it. So for example, again, if we think about you know the cortisol effect and like how is cortisol potentially inhibiting learning, one of the first, you know, the brain targets, and there are six of them, you know, one of the first one it talks about is how do we create this environment that essentially mitigates and has this emotional climate that would allow for brain to be, you know, or allow for like emotion to set you up so that you're able to actually make connections to learning and not have that inhibitor of stress. And so when we start thinking about the technology as it relates to the biology, I think how are we creating these environments so that we're helping our students understand how to mitigate that feeling of stress. Um, there was a great article, it was in Forbes, and it was written by someone whose name I can't remember right now. Um, that's a terrible citation, but it was with the Joan Cooney Gans um, Center, the like the think tank for Sesame Street. And the researcher talks about the need for instructive mediation and that 
you know, so often we use restrictive mediation, like, hey, don't use your device or, hey, put that away. That's bad. You know, no screens right now. And instead, the argument was, how are we really consciously as educators and parents and everyone else modeling the instructive behavior that we want our students to have in those types of environments? Um, and I think that with this knowledge now of, hey, my phone might be causing me to look at it. Like right now, I have notifications turned off of everything. So while we are talking right now, there is nothing else that is going to distract me from paying attention to you. But that's through, so if I was modeling this to kids, I would say, hey, I'm going to have a conversation. I want to be able to give these people my attention and my focus. I'm going to turn everything else off instead of just saying, oh, phone's down or screen's down or whatever it might possibly be. Um, how do we instruct that? And and I think bringing it in that way, uh, and a last point, and then I'll be quiet because I realized I just carried on about a whole bunch of things. Uh, You're good. You're um, all good at that. Cool. Uh, I I realized when I was doing a lot of workshops with that tech teacher and doing professional development, we would talk sometimes and try and provide these like classroom management strategies like, you know, apples up when you have an iPad, you know, flip it over or pull the screens to 45 degrees. And these were ways that we could help with attention. And I realized after listening to feedback to teachers who would say, wait, but you're telling me to put my device away, but I want to take notes. And so I started rephrasing it to put yourself in whatever situation allows you to best pay attention. And if that means that you're going to consciously say, okay, I need my whatever device it is, great, that's your choice. If you say, okay, I'm going to put this away and I want pen and paper, great, that's your choice. And then frankly, that third option, if you really just don't care about our conversation and you want to go check Facebook, hey, you're an adult, go for it. Like that's not my business, but I think it created, again, that instructive opportunity to reflect on what am I using this screen for? And now it's really, I think that self-reflection of what am I doing with the technology, not how is the technology distracting me? Like I always said that like your iPad, your phone, it doesn't care. Like it has no feelings. It doesn't want you to be distracted. So how do we kind of like manage all of this? But that's okay. an interesting point, actually, from the Anderson Cooper deal, right? Because part of what uh, is said in that in that sequence in 60 Minutes is, and I put it in uh, bold uh, in quotes and mm -hmm. in the notes, technology is not neutral. And, I mean, I say this all the time. I say technology is a, just a tool. You know, yeah. it can be used for good or it can be used for evil. Um and I guess what they're what they're basically saying is some of these social media software programs are not neutral. And I totally agree with that. But I think it would be personally, I think it's an overstatement to say the technology itself, like they even saying that. So the phone is designed to do such and such. I don't think Steve Jobs and, and um, you know, the, the uh, who's who's the um, like Sergey Brin and well, no, yeah, I was thinking of the who's the guy that's always on the videos that. Um, Johnny Ives. Johnny Ives, thank Aluminium. you very much. That's right, aluminum. Um, I don't know that they, like I don't think Apple was really that smart with their whole design of it, right? Apple hasn't been, you know, masterful when it comes to social media from things they've done with iTunes to iCloud to other things like that. So I think it's an overstatement of this idea to say, you know, this phone is not neutral. It was designed to, you know, just to get your attention. I think it's been utilized in that way. Um, but again, that's where we need to, we need to come in and make decisions. And I really love what, what you just said, um, that, uh, uh, Beth about, you know, how do you best focus your attention? We just had a faculty meeting a couple weeks ago, uh, for the first time where our, our head of school, instead of saying, everyone put your phones away, cause we talked about this. I said, mm -hmm. I take notes on my phone. You know, he said, unless you're taking notes, please put away your device. You know, that was a step forward, but perhaps it's even another step forward giving that, um, responsibility and elective choice uh, as we as we want to to people to say you know put yourself in the in whatever context and frame you, you need to best pay attention but. well there was um i don't know if you've read this book it was um daniel goleman and peter sangi wrote the triple focus mm -hmm. um for the record you can read it while stuck on a runway on the boston airport like the whole thing while you're on the runway not that long 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 time on the runway not a very long book um 
So it's a relatively quick read, but Daniel Goleman's a social emotional learning expert and then Peter Sange thinking about it from the perspective of technology and systems thinking. And they talked about this idea of inner focus, outer focus and other focus. And so how are we teaching our students to be self-reflective and to engage and give metacognition to think about their awareness and their behaviors? And then that other focus being, you know, how does my behavior with the technology impact you? So what does it say if I'm talking to you and then suddenly I grab my device and start doing whatever? Um, and then that outer focus being the system's perspective. So actually taking time, you know, for example, in a classroom, how do we say to our students, what is the culture that we want in this classroom and how does our device use impact that culture? And to take that bigger perspective. And so I know that book really resonated with the way I started thinking about these conversations that were happening, which as we said, it felt a little one-sided, like, oh, it's the technology's fault, where I think there's so many other complexities that are worth digging into. And book recommendations are oftentimes the best things I take away from podcasts. Other podcasts are sometimes those things too, but those are awesome. So yes, please do drop those links in and everybody remember that uh, you can find these links at edtechsr.com slash links. And we will, um, there's, there's just, there's a lot here. I want to do a shout out, Jason, to your classroom 2.0 session. So Jason shared um, the uh, digital distraction session a few weeks ago on Classroom 2.0 Live. And if you don't tune into that on Saturday mornings, most Saturday mornings, that is a fantastic free professional development uh, community. And so um, you also dropped in there the four the four simple changes to take back control. Was that your link, Jason? That's not me. Oh, oh that I found that this morning. Okay. Do you want to I talk a little that one in about there. that one? It is exactly what it says. Um, it was super quick. It was just, um, it was like four things you can do on your device to take control. And one, you know, things like, do you put your device on do not disturb so you don't have a thousand different things popped up? Um, one of them that was kind of cool was they said, don't open an app, search for it. So instead of like swiping open on your phone and just tapping, you know, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, actually have to type it in because in the typing it in, it'll make you think about it and say, do I really want to do this? And I honestly can't remember the other two, but those two caught me. Um, personally, I've started doing this. I log out of all my social media accounts when I'm trying to really get stuff done because then when I'm procrastinating and I go, oh, I'll just check in and see what's going on, I have to log in, which makes me go, no, I don't. I have to get this paper done. Um, but isn't isn't that nagging like, oh, I think I'm going to go check this. Um, it It is a real thing, right? I mean, yeah. and for those of us that are, are avid sharers or even not, I mean, I think it's it's something that um, perhaps goes beyond personality and whether you are whatever, gold, blue, orange, green, whatever your thing. I don't know. It just it's, the psychology of this. We, we are building the plane as we fly it, so to speak. And. Um, we're thinking about doing something and it may be in early June now because May is so crazy the end of school, but doing something about screen time in the summer and, you know, and I'd like to do something that's somewhat balanced. It's not just negative, you know, throw your screens away. It's the summertime, you know, flush it down the toilet. I mean, I, I think there's, there are lots of good ways that we could be using our screens, but I also, you know, know certainly for our seventh grader that, you know, she completely balks at the idea of having limits on screen time. And so um, I just I, it's something that we're all wrestling with. Right. And it's and that's a unique thing that we've all dealt with television. And I, Neil, I'm a fan of Neil Postman. And he you know wrote at length about the, the amusing ourselves to death and the generations growing up, you know, being passive and watching the television. I think there's a lot to be said for the active uh, nature of social media. But I don't know. I think there's there's a lot of good stuff to, to dig into here. And I am glad to get to get to consider this a little bit more. Anything else to add on that, Jason, or you want to take us to another, another direction? I would just summarize by saying that, that if you are in a classroom right now with, you know, preschool through graduate students, you need to be striking up these discussions with your students. I think that that's uh, it's just not being talked about enough. And we tend to have this phenomenon, I think, and, and it's with any, any uh, learning advancement, revolution, evolution, whatever you want to call it, that we're so, we're so bent on defending the broader movement that, that we, we tend to, to lose these nuances. I have the same opinion about online learning that uh, we, we've been uh, trying so hard in, in my industry to, to 
claim ourselves to be a legitimate alternative to the face-to-face classroom that we uh, sometimes ignore the fact that that online learning can radically shift the relationship between student and teacher. And I think the same thing happens with devices, right? Like we want these, we, we understand the power of these advocates, but you know, that, that tends to get lost then in the nuances of this. And, um, you know, sometimes we end up making somewhat silly claims in, in, in our attempt to kind of legitimize, you know, what I think have to be revolutionary devices because it's obviously changing our culture dramatically. But, um, you know, all these things are, 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 are very disruptive and uh, need, uh, you know, uh, the appropriate amount of thought and discussion. So. All right. Well, Jason, why don't you take us to another article? We're a little bit. We're almost. We're almost at halftime. So yeah, I expected this topic to take a bit. So that's good. Uh, a more maybe a more uh, uh, on the ground topic that I just want to mention because there's been so much news about this lately. Um, in our ongoing thought about the Internet of Things and, and how it, it's starting to impact our culture, I, I dropped two links in this week that I think are funny stories about. Um, you know, how our net connected world and, and the fact that, that we're going from, you know, a half dozen devices on our networks to, to, uh, you know, uh, dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of devices within the next couple of years. Two cautionary tales, uh, today. Um, uh, one of them was from, um, Slate Magazine last week, and I actually had dropped this, uh, one in Twitter and sent it off to Wes, but, uh, the makers of an automated garage door opener, Shut off access to a um, uh, to someone's garage door opener. Basically, took it off the network and, and stopped allowing it to be uh, used because the person had left a bad Amazon review and demanded better customer service from the company he bought it from. And um, you know that that's an interesting thing. There's you know a lot of of, of things you're introducing into your ecosphere when you are not. Um, uh, uh, or when you're introducing something that's net connected uh, to do something that is a, you know, a common task inside your household. But one of them is, is that you are now dependent on external servers, external support, external uh, interaction for that item to work. So if you are putting a mission critical thing, your sprinklers, your uh, your thermostat, your garage door, the lock on your door to an internet connected device, you are exposing yourself to all sorts of things. And I'm not saying this as, as a negative or even a cautionary tale as much as you need to be really cognizant of this. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I love my Google Home. I love my net connected devices that I can turn things on and off with my voice. Um, but that, you know, if I don't, if my TV doesn't turn on tonight, I can go pull the plug and plug it directly into it. But my garage door doesn't open. It's a bit of a different prospect. So I guess I'd, I'd, I'd send out the, the opening notion of, um, uh, are, are either of you interested in more IoT or in Im- implementing IoT devices? And has it caused you any pause? I'll, I'll defer to you, Beth. I mean, so I actually was thinking about a comment that um, Bill Fitzgerald from Common Sense Media made. I can't remember when we were talking about this, but it had to do with like reading, like using e-readers. And he made the comment of, are we reading books or are books reading us? Where, so I, with all of this, yeah, that made me stop and think. Because, you know, when you're reading, say, a Kindle book, it starts highlighting things that other people have highlighted. And and then it feeds into other things. So I know that between having lots of nieces and nephews under the age of eight and being a doctoral student, like my latest Amazon you might be interested in was like Snuffle Bunny and Mixed Methods Research. Like, it must think I'm insane. Um, you know, but starting to think, like, how is all of this building profiles and connections and what does it know about you? And then I, I've been thinking about like, could potentially our houses be smarter than us? Like how many different things are we starting to connect? I don't know. Well, definitely we've talked about uh, Cambridge Analytica and the you know campaigns for Brexit as well as for the U.S. presidential campaigns and the roles that this targeted advertising played and the um, the, the mountains of data. I, I mean, I have I have definitely changed my use of Facebook uh, because of those conversations. Also, the Note to Self podcast and the Privacy Paradox deal that they did with note to self. Um, you know, I guess they've already got my data. I mean, there was an article, I think I dropped it in last week where somebody was researching and 
we got to be careful. We're not just like being the new Art Bell with the with these conspiracy theories or something. But I mean, th- this person was claiming that you could see the 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 data passing from your browser to the Facebook cloud, and so that even when you typed in something and then you deleted it, that they still knew that because it had passed through, even though it didn't post, and everything that you've deleted. And and so they, they just build these personality profiles, and, and all of this data is available, and now you know our privacy protections have, that were going to, to go into effect um, in November or whatever have been washed away by by the FCC and by our, our new president. So and, and Congress, right, Congress voted for this. So anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still, I'm very wary of the security aspect of the, um, internet of things. And I guess I'll do a shout out to, maybe I didn't drop this link in. No, I think I did. Uh, this is, uh, WordFence, which is a, a plugin for, uh, WordPress, but th- uh, from April 11th, thousands of hacked home routers are attacking WordPress sites. And, and we talked, uh, last, Fall, I guess it was in November where we had the the Mirai botnet, which was an Internet of Things uh, botnet that um, allowed folks to connect to webcams and all these other kinds of things. So, you know, we need to be looking at security. I, I saw a Linksys router sitting under a, a table today at uh, school and I was like going, OK, is that thing plugged in? You know, it was a pretty old device. Um, I actually discovered we still have. Well. I guess we'll just, this isn't that embarrassing, but we do have two Windows XP machines still running on our network. One of them uh, runs a seismograph that was inherited from a, a past teacher. And anyway, security is needs to be everybody's concern. So I, I think that we need to be uh, wary in our rush to be early adapters, especially when it comes to anything that affects our physical security, like our door locks and our garage doors. Well, since, since you're going for balance though, I'm going to bring, bring, bring the positive back on there. Um, but I just think about, I took a class in 2002 in emerging technologies. So go back, I can't do that math, 15 years. Yes, I can. Um, so, you know, 15 years ago. And at the time, Georgia Tech was pioneering wearable computing. And it was the idea that you would have a bracelet and your significant other would have one and they would be like networked mood bracelets. And the idea that potentially that other person could know how you're doing. So on the flip side, I think there's some potential for how does it allow us to actually build stronger connections, you know, by providing this kind of information that we may not have otherwise, you know, where, you know, let's imagine that I had it on. I'd be like, wow, Wes, you're turning purple. I must be ticking you off right now. I should back off. I mean, or even to think about how does that support a student that might have difficulty, you know, thinking about a student that might have whether it's autism or Asperger's or difficulty understanding and interpreting other emotions, how does technology allow them to make a better connection to their world? So maybe there's a positive as well. Oh, there definitely is. And, and it links, there's a, an article in our, in our notes uh, from World Economic Forum on March 31st, computers can now read your emotions. Here's why that's not as scary as it sounds. Now, again, this is we need to consider the source. And this is by a guy whose company is producing these chips and the technology to be able to do this that he wants to to sell. But, you know, when it comes to learning, when it comes to e-medicine, we've talked about, you know, Japan and the aging demographics and robots that are already caring for the elderly. Um, But definitely when it comes to things like learning disabilities and ways in which technologies can just open up doors that wouldn't be. Um, open otherwise, I think there's there's a lot of positives, but um, Jason, or, no, go ahead, Beth. No, I was just thinking too, or even if you go back, like take it to the classroom setting and a few of us were talking about wearables when like Google Class and Apple Watch were first coming out. But imagine as a teacher, if you essentially had almost like a dashboard of potential biometric feedback and I could be like, again, Wes is getting totally stressed out right now. Maybe... I need to touch, you know, go over and say, hey, Wes, how are you doing with this? Do you understand this concept? Or maybe there's a way, again, it could increase that personal reaction so that I could, as the teacher, make a better connection and help you make a deeper connection to the learning. So making that stuff visible. I totally wanted this in every workshop is like, I want a little uh, augmented reality level meter. You know, how overwhelmed are you right now yeah. with technology one to 10? You know, and if I look around and see, I've got a lot of eights, nines and tens, you know, that, that should change my response. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, right. Jason was talking about distance, you know, uh, online learning and distance learning. One of the biggest things I learned, you know, working with video conferencing at Texas Tech as a distance learning director for five years, 
and then doing more video conferencing myself, you lose so much of your affective connection to your audience where if you are face to face, you don't have that augmented reality little level meter, but you can see people's faces and you can feel a vibe and it totally isn't there when you've right. got people, you know, scattered geographically in different places when the communication is mediated by the screen. Right. Well, and then I'll, I'll just drop the other article in because it's funny. Uh, Burger King released a commercial that essentially is a 15 second commercial that's intended to try to get your Android phone or your Google Home to talk to you about about Whoppers. Um, basically, it's it's 15 seconds and it says, "I don't have time to tell you why Whoppers are awesome." And by the way, my Google Home's listening, so it basically says at the end, "Okay, Google, tell me about Whoppers." Sorry, I'm not sure how to help with that yet. Well, hopefully that's that's <laughs> what it actually does. But I mean that's. You know, and, and that's that's the, the, the most fundamentally basic uh, way that advertising is going to interact with these devices. But that voice interaction piece of, of, of IoT technologies is, is really important. And um, a little side preview, this is the crux of my doctoral dissertation research. It's something I am studying in a classroom environment. Um, but the bottom line is, is that we uh, th this stuff changes everything, right? And so keeping an eye on it is an important piece of this. And I love this notion of, of getting that kind of that, that biofeedback on individual students, but this is also not new either. You may have been in a library that uh, installed one of those uh, stoplight um, uh, audio meters to where uh, they were, there's a green is really quiet and red is really loud and you gotta make sure that you don't get to the red and that sort of thing. That's a very basic version of, of what the sensors will be, connected sensors will be uh, in and out of our bodies and around our classrooms. And that's coming to a classroom near you soon. Well, and I will have, I hadn't put this one in, but I just dropped it. This is uh, April 5th, Mashable. This company is microchipping its workers to give them all access pass to the office. And uh, I actually, I, sometimes I enjoy just going to different Apple TV apps and checking stuff out. And so I was like going in Gadget and, and Mashable. And that's where I saw this last night and then found the article. Uh, so yeah, if you're concerned about, uh, you know, the number of the beast and everyone being labeled, they're actually injecting. It's like in their thumb. They're like injecting this RFID chip. And then when you come into the co-working space, you can just put your hand up and I, you know, these things are here. Uh, I was in Hong Kong maybe five years ago, and uh, one of my guides uh, one day had this watch called the Octopus Watch, and it was equipped with RFID, and it was reloaded with money. And so we went on the the um, ferries, you know, I had to pay some money, and he just, you know, had his watch. Um, so I think the other th one other thought I have on this, and then I want to talk about Mastodon a little bit, is the ethics of this, Right. This is a connection to the classroom. We need to not only be talking about the technology, we need to be talking about the the ethics and and the right and the wrong. Uh, we've I think some of these articles, I think maybe even um, the, uh, the the sixty minutes uh, piece that that we have mm -hmm. with Tristan Harris, they talk about the you know just throw it out there, you know, put it out, break it, you know, iterate. Um, that's kind of the mentality with, with, with a lot of these startup companies in Silicon Valley and things like that. And so that's an important piece. And as we talk about computer science programs, building those at our school and the ways in which we're going to try and equip students to be ready for the world of STEM and all these wonderful, perhaps, um, you know, job opportunities that are going to exist in, in a world of increasing automation and AI, thinking about the ethics and the ways in which we need to understand the human condition and, and not just have students technically savvy, but also socially aware and responsible and, and, and desiring to be responsible and to bring those conversations into the workplace where, you know, certainly in some companies that may not be the cool thing to do, but it's, uh, it's important. So. I, I've been watching a lot of 60 Minutes lately, but there was a great episode is a couple months ago, but they taught, they had, they interviewed, um, someone from Google, they interviewed someone from Uber, they interviewed someone doing driverless cars, and they talked about how the giant tech companies are forming an ethics council. Because with all, all of this artificial intelligence, the, like the technical capacity is there for the technology to be smarter than people. And they were talking about a super intelligence, but at what point does it become an ethical 
Dilemma. And we have to code it, right? Because they're algorithms. And while the, while the machine itself may be able to write code, and that's where the, the Elon Musk, uh, Bill mm-hmm. Gates, uh, Stephen Hawking fears of AI, you know, enter in, uh, at this point, it, it, it looks like we've, we've have to code it in. If you don't code in the, the ethics and the right and the wrong, you know, how it, it's not going to be there in the system. Okay. I want to talk a quick, a little bit about Mastodon. I am very enthused by this. Um, Eugene Rochko, Rochko, I don't know if I'm saying his name right. March 3rd, 2017, a post on Medium, learning from Twitter's mistakes, privacy, and abuse handling tools in Mastodon. Uh, Eugene is a German coder. I think he's in, sounds like his early 20s. And he has created a federated social media platform, which looks and feels very much like Twitter. Actually, it looks a lot like TweetDeck. And what's cool is it's it's non-commercial. It's not owned by a company with a board of directors. It, there's no advertising. Anybody can run an instance. And when it, when when I say federated, think email, right? Not a, there's not a single company that owns email. Any of us can and might, might already actually have our own email server. I don't think it's really that great to run one of those now, as hard as it is to to keep out spam and things. But we all could, right? And similarly, uh, Mastodon is a platform you can download from GitHub and you can run your own instance. And so when you join a Mastodon instance, you are, you're not only able to connect inside your instance, like you could in the early days of email, go back to the days of AOL. Um, but you know, the revolution was, oh my gosh, I can email anybody, you know, and, and, and that whole interconnection. And so you can view your timeline on Mastodon and see, uh, federated posts, which are by anyone. And it's, it's small, it's growing. But the thing that I'm so excited about is number one, um, I've been concerned about Twitter's survival long term. The, the trolling, the horrific, uh, nastiness that I fortunately have not personally experienced or nor my children or, or family, but it's there. And, you know, any of us could potentially share something that goes viral that leads to just, you know, bad, bad consequences in our life. And so, um, I'm also just concerned that Twitter has, has been doing stupid things. You know, I don't like what they've done with the replies and how it's hard now to, you know, to uh, take take folks out or or whatever, it's just they're, they're, I don't think they've they've handled it really well. So I'm inspired by Mastodon. I encourage folks to join uh, to check it out. Um, I don't think it's going to be taking the world by storm, but it it does show the potential for a non commercial, non business model um, social media platform. I think to move into uh, a mainstream environment, especially with Patreon, which is this micropayment system that the creator of this basically wanted to get like 800 a month, I think. And he's over that now. And so, you know, I am willing to pay. And I, in fact, I, I did a Patreon uh, uh, pledge of a dollar a month to the guy who's running my instance. Cause I'm like, I'll pay a dollar a month for this. Right. You know, and if there's 30,000 people on that, on that server, or whatever, then and, and micropayments can work. That that ushers in a new day for a lot of things potentially, and that could be journalism and, and it could be other things. So, Jason, any thoughts on Mastodon and the world of non-commercial federated social media? Uh, well, I, I hadn't heard of Mastodon until about nine minutes ago. So, um, I, I you know the, here's the problem, right? The, the the two things that are keeping Twitter alive right now. The three things that are keeping Twitter alive right now are the president of the United States. Secondarily, uh, that yeah, that's that's. I'm not saying that's a good thing. Uh, the second thing is live event connection, whether it's a presidential debate or the Super Bowl. And third, teachers. Right, that's the that's the groups that are keeping Twitter alive right now. People are leaving it droves. The growth has stopped. People are abandoning accounts, da 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 da, because of how terrible I think Twitter handled their own growth. And then we could go back and get really nerdy and talk about when they blocked um, uh, when they blocked um, um, uh, you know third party apps five or six years ago, and da 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 da. But the bottom line is, is that I think people crave the kind of like quick interaction that Twitter provides. It's just that the tool that's available right now is, is not ready for it. So this is the answer. Then I say awesome. Oh, do we lose Wes? I just, I, I did. I just go frozen. Were you? You did. Okay. 
I'm glad you were talking. That didn't happen in a while. Maybe it's time to restart my router. I haven't restarted my router for two months. It's probably time. All right. I heard, I heard nothing that you said, Jason. So Beth, you'll have to intelligently respond to him. <laughs> well, no. I, okay. So I think, yes, Jason talks about the components that were still keeping Twitter alive. But I wonder as well, just is it that people are tired of the medium? Because I know with the rise of live video and then everything yeah. moving towards that idea of live video, it might just be that while it was nice before to have that limitation of 140 characters and just get something out there quick, now there's those different avenues for express, like for creative expression. Right. And I think Twitter, you know, where it started out really with that idea of being a microblogging tool, like that quickly deteriorated. You know, it kind of it lost its integrity for what it was, um, and it got so commercialized. But now being able to have, you know, your channels, your stories, and I think it even that terminology, like how are you sharing your story that you're getting in those other channels? I'm wondering if that's contributing to it as well. Um, Something else I'll comment is that Macedon um, is created in Germany. And so the instance that this is, wherever the instance is, basically it will need to follow the rules there. And so they've got very strict rules in Germany and Europe about no pro-Nazi, um, they call national socialists, you know, party stuff, uh, racism. Mm. And so um, there's an article, I think this is the, it's one of the, the security articles, um, why everything is hackable, computer security is broken from top to bottom. This is The Economist on April 8th. I think that's the article that talks about how smaller communities are better, can more be more easily policed and accountability. So this idea of, of uh, individual folks you know, take, having having smaller networks and then choosing their own rules because different Mastodon instances um, are focused around different things. So, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's worth checking out. I'm sure there are many. Uh, well, for the thousands of people, for the five people who are listening to this, um, whoever is listening, you know, you're probably an early adopter, right? Because you're listening to this EdTech podcast. Uh, as an early adopter, it can be kind of neat to to see and to experience you know, what's happening at the, at the onset of, of a new uh, platform. So, um, you know, maybe, may, maybe Mastodon is going to make it, maybe it won't. Um, but I certainly am having, uh, I'm being inspired by the fact that FOSS free and open software, you know, has a, a space in social media and, and I've got friends and have um, definitely been on that float to varying degrees where it's like open office and office libre and these other, you know, alternatives to the Microsoft world. And I hadn't, you know, really checked out so social media platforms. And so because of some mainstream media coverage, it's, uh, you know, exploded to a degree. I mean, o over what it, what it had, what, what it had been before. And I think it's something to, something to watch. All right. Well, it is about 10 minutes till the top of the hour. Um, we are going to do geeks of the week, but, if you all would like to, whatever you can, or you know, disclose about your your doctoral stuff. Um, Beth, we'll start with you. What what are you uh, kind of looking at in in your dissertation journey, and what what stage are you at? And we'll just get, send you all kinds of good, good encouragement over the airwaves to so, get that thing done. Well, here we'll go in reverse. Chapters one through four are due on Sunday. Um, Whoa! And you're with us. With Thank you. you so much. Okay, it's a welcome distraction. I uh, I'm. Struggling with effect size and statistical power right now. Yay. Uh, but so the program at Hopkins is a different kind of EDD where it's three years all applied. You write your dissertation starting on day one. So most programs, you go through your coursework and then you do your research. This is, hey, it's day one. Let's get started. Um, so I'm, you know, just over halfway through my coursework and I have chapters one through four. So I've spent the last year studying a problem of practice, which it takes a very like user-centered problem approach where I've been looking at why can't districts kind of, if you look across an entire ecosystem of a district, why can't they really start to innovate classroom practice with technology in every classroom in every school? So like, if you, you probably think about your own schools, you know, you've got this great teacher and that great teacher, or maybe this whole department or that building, but why can't we get it all in the same place? And so after a whole ton of research, what I found is that a lot of times it's like the Tower of Babel, where even when people say we've written a mission statement, there might be a thousand different interpretations. And it goes back to this idea of 
how do you actually start to move forward if you don't know where you're going? And so where I am right now is I've actually been designing a set of cognitive tools to help specific stakeholders have better conversations. Um, so I'm going to be piloting in four districts, assuming I pass my exams uh, starting in August. Um, and I'm building this toolkit where it's targeted at like superintendent level, like assist, um, superintendents, assistant superintendents, districts, and then principal, assistant principal, and then coaching teacher leader teams. And in each of my districts, they're called something different. And the idea is if you have access to this toolkit, essentially, how does it let you have a more productive conversation to start moving forward? And that's hopefully a short version. I'm trying to get more succinct. Wow. Uh, no, it's good. I don't think you're really not supposed to do 140 characters in college. So, yeah. Uh, oh, gosh. I'm at too many pages right now. Jason, where are you in the journey? Uh, well, I'm I'm uh, on the ground researching. Um, the University of Montana program is probably a little more traditional. And when I started nine years ago, um, I took a course here or there. And then a while ago, I passed some comps. And then I had some, you know, minor personal drama. And then I got back to it. And I'm on topic number seven. But the topic that is the one that uh, I did get approved uh, by a committee and I'm in the middle of right now um, involves um, – the application of intelligent personal assistance in the classroom. So um, I, I've been vague about it because I, I will wait until I'm done. Um, I have a schedule now that suggests that I'll probably defend um, my, my uh, research probably in late summer, early fall, and it looks like it's going to get done. So, and for me, that's, that's the bottom line here. In, done. In, in, done. Right, April, 2017. So, um, if you if I if 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 I had, you told me in you know um, fall 2008 that uh, here I am in uh, spring 2017 still hacking at this I would have been but uh, yeah so exciting stuff really interesting um, and I I'm personally very interested in the notion of student engagement um, when students report that they are um, uh, uh, intellectually and emotionally engaged in the classroom. It does all sorts of amazing things. But um, I think looking at any tool or any context in, in engagement, I think is a great thing. Excellent. Well, before we do Geeks of the Week, Jason, are there any other um, articles you want to do a quick a quick recap or, or shout out um, to? We've got a ton, so. Yeah, I just, I, I have, uh, uh, we mentioned VPNs last week, and I've ran into a number of really great articles this week on VPNs, and so you can see them in the show notes at techsr.com, but um, the first was uh, an article from Engadget about the problem with finding a good VPN, and then second, um, a life hacker takes on mis, uh, misperceptions about VPNs, um, and then finally they offer the, a crowdsourced uh, top winner of the best VPN, which happens to be the, the, the product that I use, Private Internet Access. Um, it's a wonderful, easy-to-use uh, VPN service. So um, we, I would encourage you to go back to our discussion last week about that. There's obviously a lot of, 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 of energy around this topic right now, um, but I do think that that even though the, the discussion was not as nuanced as I would have wanted because of the, of the situation at hand, it is important that we think about, you know, our data and, and who has access to it. What is your quick explanation, Jason, to folks about why they should consider a VPN at this point? Um, well, if you're ever using public Internet access in any way, shape, or form, I'm talking about free Wi-Fi at the coffee shop or um, airplane um, uh, Wi-Fi or airport Wi-Fi, you should have a VPN because your your traffic is probably getting sniffed. And what it means is that people use nefarious tools on their devices to look at um, uh, look at what you're doing on the Internet. You know, even if you believe that what you're doing is not very nefarious, um, I think that you know, if you value your privacy, you'd want to utilize a VPN service. But uh, last week there was uh, a number of articles that, that I think were, were overly panicked in light of the situation, but – that uh, Obama-era rules that were supposed to go into effect in 2017 to prevent your ISP from selling your uh, your usage history to advertisers uh, were pulled by the uh, Congress and then ultimately signed by President Trump. And, um, you know, I, I have ju just enough distrust of Internet service providers that I think they probably would do something with your data. I don't think it's going to be, you know, to the point of I can call up 
Wes's uh, internet service provider and say, can you send me a folder with everything Wes has gone to? I don't think it's going to be to that point, which I hope it's not to that point. But it, it, it is requiring, I think, people be more conscious about the trail you are leaving, for better or for worse, um, uh, with the sites that you visit. All right. Well, I think it's probably time for Geeks of the Week. Uh, and why don't we go to our guest, Beth, to, to share yours first. Well, so I, one of my favorite tools that I've been using a ton lately is Real Time Board. And I don't know if you guys are using that or not. It's um, So it's web-based, and educators get a free account. And then with that free account, you can make teams. And so imagine having a never-ending collaborative space that you can do anything you want with it. And what's super cool is it ties into OneDrive, Dropbox, Google Drive, anything. So imagine if you're doing large-scale planning for a project, you can put live Google Docs, live slides on the board, sticky notes, shapes. Um, it's got like threaded comments built in on it. There's a live chat and it's completely synchronous real time. And there's a little bit of a learning curve because there's so much that you can do with it and people make a mess of it at first. So start with just a few collaborators. But I've been using it for like building out everything from like what are all the models going into my dissertation to how am I starting to study for comprehensive exams, like timelines, grouping literature, all kinds of things. So I'm finding that people don't know about it. And it's just, it works on everything. And they just released an iPad app, too. So you can even use your iPad, take pictures of sticky notes, and it digitizes them on wow. your board. Yeah. Sweet. It's pretty cool. All right. That is awesome. Jason, what do you got? Well, um, I, so I, I travel a lot. It's a big passion of mine. My wife and I... Um, uh, especially in the last two years, have really worked hard to up our travel game. And uh, we're going to Sweden in June to visit a future uh, foreign exchange student that will be living in our home in the fall. And we were looking for the right flight that that uh, brought us to Sweden and back, but we were thinking about a stopover in Iceland and da-da-da-da-da. And, we, we, and I'm not joking when I say for three hours last night, we bickered back and forth looking for great flights. And ironically, this morning's New York Times um, in light of the United situation that's, that's lit fire in social media in the past 48 hours, talked about that part of the problem with uh, most airline sites is that they don't tell you uh, about not just the price of a flight, but whether or not it's on time, the pleasure of the flight, the seats that are available, yada, yada, yada. Well, there is one tool that does a very good job at that, and it's gotten better in the last 12 months, Google Flights, um, which is Google's uh, flight search engine, actually attempts to rate things like the size of the seats, how often a plane is late. It tells you when a connection is, is likely too tight and you are you have a better chance of missing your upcoming flight using the, all the data that the Google lets do to um, you know, put together a narrative. And last night, after three hours of banging our head against IcelandAir.com and Orbitz and, and uh, the Alaska Air uh, flights uh, uh, service, we managed to find a, the cheapest ticket by about a factor of $700 a seat there and back that had flights that were quite reasonable, that fit within our time frame, the cheapest were available. But the difference between now and the last time I used Google Flights is that it took us directly to the website. In this case, it was American Airlines, and it's, it's three different airlines that we're flying on to get there and back. But we didn't even have to search for the flight again on American Airlines. It just took us to a cart at American Airlines where we could just purchase the tickets outright. And so um, Google Flights is turning into, once again, my go-to place to, to look for and think about interesting ways to get from point A to point B involving airlines. I think I'm going to be purchasing a ticket to Vietnam, and now I think I know what <laughs> site I may be using to do that. So, All right. Well, my Geek of the Week is uh, just a little gadget, but it's the Vojek USB charger desktop charging station with smart identification. Um, as I mentioned, I think in the last few shows, we – we're having a huge arts festival at our school this last week. We had over 3,000 students and adults, and our Wi-Fi held up. We uh, had the local ISP. They donated a bump from 300 megs to 1.3 gigs, and we uh, either upgraded or installed new 
uh, about 13 access points. We have 71 across our 80-acre campus. And so anyway, in the faculty lounge for the adjudicators and workshop leaders, as well as adult sponsors, in addition to wonderful food and beverages, we knew that people needed chargers. So this is a smart charger, kind of like the anchor chargers that Jason has recommended and we have in our car. Um, but uh, this one is just 18 bucks. It looks like a hockey puck and it has six different ports. Um, we actually hosted a Meraki um, workshop for uh, network admins and tech directors, and they were generous enough to give us these wonderful little ch USB chargers that have you know three ports coming off of it, the lightning port, the micro USB, and the USB-C charger. So it looks like a green spider with all of the, the, the arms there, but uh, that was... Uh, good success. People were appreciative to have them. And, and now we've got some extras to, you know, put in some strategic places on campus. And I actually learned that one of our teachers had uh, parents donate nine nooks to her classroom, but only had one charging cable. So now she has the Vojek USB charger and she can charge all of her nooks at once. So that's a good little item to pick up. So we want to thank everybody for tuning in tonight. This has been the EdTech Situation Room for uh, April the 12th, 2017. I want to thank our special guest, Beth, and, and just great luck to you as you continue your exploits with your uh, doctoral program and Jason as well. And want to encourage everyone to follow us on Twitter, EdTechSR, which is, we hope, going to continue to be our platform of choice for social networking. It's definitely the best way to find out when we're going live and when we are, are changing up our show schedule. Um, I think we're going to probably be normal time next week. Is that right, Jason? I believe so, yeah. I think so. Yep. So we'll be Wednesday night again, uh, and we'll be at our normal 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain. Um, but it worked out great to be a little early for Beth, and that means I get to do the, the 9.30 Central uh, dance pickup for my wife, and she's excited about that. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we will hope to see you all again soon. Thank you.